Welcome to the Positivity Podcast, where we explore the skills and strategies of personal development with cutting-edge researchers, authors, entrepreneurs, and experts. Mark Brackett is the founding director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence and is a professor at Yale. And honestly, I've met few people as open to discussing their emotions as Mark. It's really refreshing. And it's easy to see why his research about emotions spans all areas of life, including learning, decision-making, creativity, relationships, health, workplace. He's also the lead developer of Ruler, a pre-K to high school evidence-based whole school approach to social and emotional learning that has been adopted by over 2,000 schools. That's Ruler, L-U-L-E-R. He's also published 125 scholarly articles, has consulted for corporations like Facebook, Microsoft, and Google, and also founded a company as well as an app called Mood Meter. And this episode is your go-to on all things social-emotional intelligence. What's the research show? What are the practices and tactics you can apply to your everyday life to make it happen? So without further ado, let's hear from Mark. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Positivity Podcast. And I am here, and I'm, I'd say I'm feeling very excited. I'm feeling happy um, to have our guest on today. I'm trying to be intentional with my world words because our guest is Mark Brackett, the head of Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. And um, how are you feeling, Mark? Um, you know, this is, I've decided over the last couple of weeks that I'm the person who asks the questions but doesn't answer it. Uh, but um, I'm feeling at ease right now. It's the end of the day. Mostly I have one more meeting. Um, you know, I'm still feeling cooped up. Every day, every morning I wake up, I'm like, where do I got to be? And then I'm like, nowhere. <laughs> so I'm, I'm used to being, you know, on the go. And so this is different for me. I hear you. Um, so I'd love to hear um, a little bit about your journey to this social emotional intelligence work. What are some of the the steps and twists and turns in your life that brought you to where you are today? That's a big question. Um, I'm 50 years old, so <laughs> we, we we'll cap the interview at six hours. You know. All right. So. <laughs> um, where would you like me to start, actually? Any thoughts of yeah. anything? That's a, that's a good question. When was the moment where you realized that social emotional intelligence was something important that you hadn't been thinking about before? So I think subconsciously, you know, as a kid, because I had a pretty tough childhood and my uncle, who was my hero, um, really introduced me to these concepts, you know, sitting in the backyard of our home in New Jersey. I didn't know what it was. There was no term social emotional learning when I was, you know, in the early 1980s when I was a teenager. Um, and then, you know, went through life a little bit. Middle school, high school, college. You know, after college, I still didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. 
I had studied martial arts, I was gonna be a karate teacher, I was gonna be an entrepreneur, then I was gonna sell product, I was kind of all over the place. I was gonna be a lawyer, a Spanish teacher. Um, and um, none of those became, I mean, martial arts became my second career. But um, anyhow, I had a lot of anxiety and was in therapy and read a book called Emotional Intelligence that had come out in 1995. And it just was like, oh my goodness, this is like everything that I've been wanting to learn and everything that my uncle was teaching me as a kid. And so then I pulled my uncle out of retirement and we started writing our curriculum together back then. And that was really the beginning of my career back in like 1996. And that's when I decided to get my doctorate and I found Peter Salovey at Yale and Jack Mayer at University of New Hampshire. I got rejected from Yale, uh, went to New Hampshire for my PhD then became a professor at Yale, you know, about 18 years ago. That's like the, that's the, that's the abridged story. <laughs> Is there anything that you left out that would be surprising for folks? Um, well, I would say that, you know, my career has been, you know, it's all about like not knowing what you don't know, then learning something and then like, wow, that's cool. And then capitalizing on that and growing that way. I didn't have, a, you know, I worked at an Ivy League university. You know, I didn't have an Ivy League education. Um, neither one of my parents graduated from college. Um, my father didn't graduate from high school. So the, um, I wasn't in a, you know, in a, an environment, you know, that many of my students, you know, have grown up in. And so I think, you know, just for me, you know, um, it's about being a, a lifelong learner and the, um, yeah, so that, I mean, I think, I don't know if that's a surprise or not. Um, I don't know. Now that I'm, I'm trying to think about surprises, uh, I mean, most people wouldn't think I have a fifth degree black belt in the martial arts because I look like a, you know, a neurotic Jewish kid from Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what led you down that path? Because I was terribly bullied as a kid and I had really low self-esteem and neither one of my parents were able to support me. Uh, not because they didn't want to, they just didn't know how to. They didn't have an emotional intelligence education. So um, my father just dropped, you know, found this karate school and uh, I studied martial arts with this person who I thought was great. And it, I got, you know, I wasn't um, very good at it in the beginning, but I was like a precocious, eager student. And it just grew and grew and grew. And then, you know, became a martial arts instructor and uh, it became a big part of my life. Um, so I feel blessed that that, you know, really contributed to my thinking even around emotional intelligence, right? Mind control, you know, the, the focus, you know, the meditation aspects of it, you know, all kind of part of what I think about this work. I can, I, I can relate um, on a lot of levels. One, I also grew up um, half Jewish in New Jersey <laughs> and definitely was anxious, I think for me, I did track and field and I did cross country. And there are a few things 
as anxiety producing, as coming to a line with a thousand other high schoolers in the middle of a field, someone walking up, you know, about a hundred feet away, lifting up a gun, shooting it, and then you're basically going to run until you feel like you're going to pass out <laughs> at the end of um, at the end of the running. And for me, like I found that when I was anxious, doing things where I felt a, a locus of control, kind of similarly to you said, like really was a way to sort of feel more centered and, and, and really choose something where I could be more centered and I could feel mm -hmm. calm. Um, I'm curious, you know, since 1995, when, you know, your, your earlier career, and I'm guessing you probably had started some of the martial arts then, up until now, what have been some of those questions that have been on your mind? And maybe I'll even broaden out that question. What would you say have been the different questions that have been posed in the evolution of this body of research on social emotional intelligence? If you were to bucket it into different phases of 1995 is I believe when Daniel Goldman's book, um, emotional mm -hmm. intelligence came and that was, you know, I believe introduced the term emotional intelligence and really was a huge bestseller from then until now, what are the different phases of where we've been and where do you think we're going? Well, importantly, you know, this is where history is important. Um, the original theory of emotional intelligence was written in 1990 by Peter Salve and Jack Mayer, two professors. Um, Dan wrote the book that popularized the concept. And he really is the person who made the word or the concept, you know, um, come alive in terms of people knowing about it. But um, oftentimes people think that Dan, you know, coined the term, but he didn't. Um, and I think, you know, there's a, this is a complicated thing, you know, depending on how deep your listeners want to go. Because, you know, emotional intelligence is about how we reason with and about our emotions, right? So it's how our brains process emotion-laden information from like me trying to read your facial expression right through Zoom right now, to me being aware of my own feelings, to, you know, how I understand the kind of causes and consequences of our emotion states, like what makes us feel angry versus disappointed versus overwhelmed versus lonely. Um, to the language that we have to describe our feeling states, to the rules around being honest and authentic and real about how we're feeling, to the strategies that we regulate our emotions with, helpful and unhelpful. Um, I can tell you over the last couple of weeks, I've demonstrated that you can be a director of the Center for Emotional Intelligence and be emotionally bankrupt. Um, I have uh, you know, the joke in my family is like, you really are a professor of emotional intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know that's the concept and then what happens is that when things get talked about in a broader way they become broader like self-esteem and motivation and perseverance um, all interesting concepts but ones that we not that we wouldn't as scientists you know assert are like emotion skills so ruler is the framework that I've worked on that really focuses on these five critical skills of recognizing, understanding, labeling, expressing, regulating emotion. And um, it's the name of the five skills, but it's also the name of our approach to teaching social and emotional learning, um, which has now been adopted by almost 2,500 schools across the United States and growing. 
10 college campuses now are starting to do this work too. And can you go through those again? Recognize, yeah. understand. Okay. Recognize emotions. If you want to go through a little bit slower so we can kind of. Yeah, sure. I can even define them. Heck so, Sounds good. So recognizing our own and other people's emotions, that has to do with me paying attention to, you know, what's going on in my body. So my physio physiological kind of level of activation, do I feel energized, do I feel depleted? It's psychological in terms of do I feel pleasant, do I feel unpleasant? And then in terms of other people, it's, you know, looking at facial expressions, body language, listening to their vocal tone, watching them behave and trying to make my best guess, you know, about how this person is feeling. That's the R and ruler recognizing. The U is understanding emotion. And that has to do with knowing the causes and the consequences. So I can ask you this one, put your test to emotional intelligence. What is the difference between jealousy and envy? Um, that's a good question. You don't have to know it, by the way. Most people don't. It's, I can tell you um, Jealousy is when you want what someone has, kind of literally, and maybe envy is that is more status oriented or you don't want exactly, I don't know. <laughs> it's all right. I mean, but you're getting at it. So envy is, you know, I'm envious of someone's car, their money, their house, their status. Um, where jealousy is actually about that feeling when you feel threatened by someone, you know, they're going to take your lover away. Um, so jealousy is a relationship driven emotion where envy is really more about things and um, wanting and desire. And so most people would say, oh, Mark, you know, it's the ivory tower trying to look, you know, smart. But, you know, that's why we say you have to name it to tame it. Because if you don't really know what you're feeling, you don't really know what to do with your feelings. And that's why the labeling is so important. And this understanding and labeling go together because, you know, another example I always give is in my own life, here I was, you know, going up for tenure as a professor, I was stressed and um, I went to the doctor and the doctor said, well, here's your Prilosec for your heartburn and here's your Ativan for your anxiety. And I was like, well, you know, maybe we can think more broadly about this. Anyhow, I left that doctor's office pissed and I went, for a walk and I'm like, all right, Mark, like, how are you freaking feeling? Long story short is that I realized I wasn't really stressed because stress has to do with having too many demands and not enough resources. I was pretty getting my stuff done. I wasn't really anxious because anxiety is about uncertainty. And so like, I was pretty sure I was gonna get tenure. So the question was, what was I feeling? And I realized in that moment, I was chronically overwhelmed. And basically, I just had too much on my plate, and I had no freedom. And I, you know, I, I did my meditation, and I went to yoga, you know, family time. But like, I was busy from 6 a.m. until 10 p.m. at night, and so I had no freedom. And it wasn't until I had that awakening, you know, that I was overwhelmed, not stress or anxiety, that I was able to realize, you know, what I needed to do, which was take shit off my plate. And all of a sudden, the heartburn went away, and I felt better. 
Um, so that's why this RUL of recognizing, understanding, labeling, you know, is so critical because it helps you to make meaning, you know, out of your inner experience. And then the E and the R ruler are what we do with our feelings. So for example, like, you don't know me, I don't know you. So like, how real can I be with you? How authentic can I be in expressing, you know, my feelings? You know, am I going to share with you what makes me feel shame? And, you know, maybe not just because I don't know you, but maybe I will because it's a podcast about emotions and I'm a 50 year old guy who doesn't really care anymore. Right. So there's so many layers to it, right? Um, to this, like the rules in our society and our families around whether or not we're true. To the, even people we love the most, our partners, our spouses, our brothers and sisters, do we tell them how we really feel? Because if we tell them, they have to listen and they have to validate. That's not what everybody's ready to do. And then finally, the last R is regulation, right? The, the strategies, you know, that we use to manage our feelings and help other people to manage theirs. And that's like a whole podcast in itself. Yeah. But um, so that's ruler. And then what we do is we take all those skills and we build tools and then we teach kids from preschool to high school to college to the workforce how to develop these skills. I have a list of 10 follow-ups. <laughs> All those interesting things you said. So let's maybe first start off with the first three. Recognize, understand, label. Um, here's kind of a, an out there question. Maybe a little being a little provocative is it really worth doing that because sometimes if i'm feeling stressed or if someone's feeling stressed you can really stew in it you can like ruminate and you can think about it and sometimes it could be good to just be like i'm just going to go for a walk and not think about it and then move. Sure. you know what is what is sort of the healthy degree of focus versus giving it space to air out how should one think about that well it has to do with whether or not you know it's being um it's impairing your functioning mm. right you, i mean because we know you know the the repercussions of suppressing our feelings right i mean gosh let's look at our world right now um we're acting out right so there's a number of things that you're bringing up. One is sometimes all you need is a glass of water or take a shower or take a walk or call a friend or, you know, distract yourself. Um, right now, you know, with the way people are feeling, you know, during this crisis, you might take a walk and then come back to your house, like go ready, you know, be ready to pull your hair out. Um, so you need more than one strategy. You know, and you're getting at this idea of being an emotion scientist, which is a big part of my book, you know, is teaching people how to be emotion scientists. For themselves. And for the world around them, right? You, you know, you want to grow up with parents as emotion scientists, not emotion judges, right? I grew up with parents who were judges of my feelings, right? My mother was like, you know, why are you so anxious? I'm like, well, why are you so anxious? <laughs> um, and my father was a tough guy, so he said, son, you gotta toughen up. I'm like that, like, 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna, yeah, one day I'll be a fifth degree black belt. I'm still not gonna be a tough guy. Um, like, I don't even know what that means. But the, uh, thick hide. The point, yeah. thick, what? Literal thick hide. Yeah, exactly. Which I don't have. Um, I know how to, you know, I know fancy martial arts moves, but I'm, it's not my genes. The, um, but my point really is that the emotion scientist, right, is open and curious to their emotions. Um, and they are asking themselves questions like, is this feeling helping me to achieve my goals in life? Or is it the feeling that's driving me away from my dreams? You know, and what I've learned over the course of my career is that really smart people don't achieve their dreams because they can't deal with their feelings. Right, they can't deal with the fear, they can't deal with the stress or the, or the sense of despair or frustration from feedback. Um, so sometimes, yes, if it's a, you know, like right now, like my family life is a mess, not because it's a mess, but just because like, I'm not used to being home with my family 24 seven for this long. And so I'm used to traveling and running around and now we're like looking at the hallways, we're like, do they say hello to each other now? Where we like look down, like what's the rule here? <laughs> um, we've, you know, I'm generally pretty controlling, um, but like my control needs have gotten like out of control. You know, every meal now, I'm not used to being home for every meal. It's like a whole thing. Um, so my point is, is like, I gotta regulate, right? I gotta use, you know, I go for the walk and it works, but you know, when it's raining out, I can't go for a walk, so what's my strategy when it's raining out, right? I like to watch some TV, but no shows on the novel, you know, no shows. I like to read, too tired to read. Like, you need a tool bag yeah. of strategies. And, and so being as, when you say everyone should be a, a, a emotion experimenters or scientists, or yes. it, it's kind of in two ways. It's sort of having that inquisitive eye into yourself and saying why mm -hmm. is the way that it is. And I imagine it's also, I'm going to do this experiment and see what the outcome is. And if I like it, then I'll keep doing it because I'm trying to regulate myself. Well, be careful there though, right? Because it depends, like, because some strategies are addictive, right? I like drinking alcohol, right? It helps me deal with my stress, but long-term, you know, may not be the best strategy. I like cookies. Mm -hmm. right? So you have to really be the scientist at the second level, which is like about the strategy itself, mm -hmm. right? Is this really helping me have better well-being, deal with my relationships, have good health, make good decisions? I'm, I imagine that I can see how labeling would be so effective. I, I read this piece by Vivek Murthy, mm -hmm. uh, who has been writing a lot about the epidemic of loneliness, and he has a yeah. lot of people coming in and they're saying, oh, I have this back pain. I mean, this is, these are physical ailments, but it's back pain or my chest here, but really it's people who aren't, who are lonely and they're not, but, and in some ways, because we don't talk about loneliness and, and no one in school is like given the playbook of when to recognize if you're lonely and that sort of stuff, it, it can happen and you can just be befuddled to these emotions within you. Um, would you consider yourself what what is what does um, emotional labeling fluency look like? Like wh how how would you recommend people get there in their, in terms of their ability to recognize emotions? Well, it's 
the reason why I wrote the book. Um, yeah, the, uh, because I felt like people didn't have um, good vocabulary. Um, so I give a lot of examples, you know, around that. The, um, and the power of it, right? Because it helps you to communicate your needs, right? If you just say, I'm pissed. Well, are you really pissed or are you disappointed? And so disappointment has to do with unmet expectations. You know, like, I, you know, I thought you were going to be real with me, you know, and you weren't. Um, so what feeling is that? Well, maybe that's just disappointment. I just have higher expectations. Then I find out you lie to me. Um, okay, now I'm pissed, right? Because that's an injustice. Like, that's just bullshit. So they're different. And the reason why I bring that up is because kids in particular, you know, boys get taught like to be more aggressive with their negative feelings. And so they come and I hate you and you suck and blah, 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 blah. And the mother or the father, you know, will say something like, who do you think you are talking to me that way? Get to your room, you know. And so the child never learns to identify their feelings which means they're not going to learn strategies to regulate them because the adults didn't have the skill to be the emotion scientist. And then you find out disappointment versus anger. Anger is typically a relationship-driven feeling. So that means if I find out my kid is really angry, probably I'm going to have to like, help them deal with a friend or a teacher. If they're disappointed, I probably maybe have to help them study harder or find better ways of achieving their goals. So it really is quite specific and granular when you get down to the nitty gritty of like parsing out the specific feeling. And do you in the book or anywhere else have sort of a menu of the different emotions and sort of a, an emotional dictionary to kind of- We do. So we have an app called the Mood Meter app. And then in the, the cheat sheet in my book is in the cover, and you can see it here which is, this is our tool that we call the mood meter. Um, and there are a hundred emotions that I've plotted, you know, in this emotion space. Um, and that's like your first kind of exposure to the vocabulary. Um, so if someone is interested in getting better at this, they say, yeah, I don't actually really know what I'm feeling. How do they study it? Would you recommend reading it and just kind of practicing it? Or I guess, I guess the app probably. The app is helpful because you can set reminders and then it has a hundred emotion words built into it. And then you can track your emotions across the day, across the week, and then you can build some awareness of like what emotions have you been feeling, what time of the day, with which people at, at work versus home. Um, and it just gives you a lot of insight you know, into that, which can be really helpful. So in one of your talks, I heard you mention that, well, I'll frame it this way. Mm -hmm. I think we like to paint narratives about ourselves and our emotions. And if, so, if you were to ask me, how are you feeling today? I could probably come up with four or five emotions. You know, I was kind of, you know, agitated in the morning and then I was hopeful in the afternoon and I was excited before getting on talk, to talk with you. Um, you mentioned in one of your talks that people have sometimes up to three to five emotions a minute. And I think 
I imagine that rate is accelerating as we are on social media and stuff like that. How do sure. like? How do you label all that? And and not necessarily. I mean, I imagine that you would just label the things that are most reoccurring or take up the most mental space. Um, yeah, I'm curious to get your uh, thoughts on that. And then if you have any other thoughts on like the narratives we shape about who we are and our emotions and how that kind of affects us. Well, you know, there's layers to our feelings, right? So like if you've lost someone, you know, close to you, you're going to have to feel sorrow or grief or sadness. And that may be like where you're kind of living emotionally. And then there are these moments, you know, throughout the day, you know, like, you get a phone call and you, get, you know, you find out you won an award or you get another, you know, you get a phone call and you find out the delivery that you've been waiting for is not coming. Um, you know, so there's these, everything's momentary, right? Because our environment is constantly shifting. And that's how the emotions come about, by the shifts in our environment. Um, you know, you're walking in the street and all of a sudden a car comes, right? You're fearful, right? Or you jump back or you see something you haven't seen in 20 years. Oh my gosh. So you're just in this constant flux of evaluating your environment and when there's shifts, it typically evokes a feeling. Um, what was your second question? I forgot, I'm sorry. Um, how should we make sense of the narratives or any, any, any kind of healthy ways of thinking about the narratives we tell ourselves about our emotions? Well, we have feelings about our feelings. You know, we call those meta-emotions, you know, that like people like men, for example, oftentimes have um, shame around their anxiety. You know, they feel like I'm a man, I shouldn't be anxious. So my students here at the university, same thing, right? They have feelings, you know, about their feelings, which are interesting because those feelings about their feelings drive them to um, suffer, right? So like, for example, being nervous is a weakness at Yale for many students, right? It's like, I got into Yale, I should be able to solve every problem. But um, none of us can solve every problem. And so I would never let anybody know how I'm feeling because then they're gonna think I'm stupid or weak or incompetent. And so, you know, my goal is to drop all that BS, you know, in the world and just like feelings are feelings. It's, you know, you can be a tough guy, whatever the heck that means, and feel sad, you know. Um, and I think the reason why, you know, we should drop our strange attitudes about emotions is because we know from research that they're critically important to everything in life, from our attentional capacity, to our healthy relationships, to our sound decision-making, to our mental health, to our performance. So if we can just embrace emotions as being valuable sources of information that we can learn how to use wisely, then also we become something to acknowledge and to cherish as opposed to suppress and repress. You know, it's funny because when we were talking earlier, you were very open about your own emotions on how you're feeling. Mm -hmm. um, and I felt almost like a, a release. It felt like very um, 
I felt, I felt even more present with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I, I totally see the, the value in opening up about your emotions. I also see the flip side where people want to be a source of support and warmth in other people's lives. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of younger people who just don't want to be a downer on someone else. So they, they don't want their problem Mm -hmm. to get in the way. And so there's kind of two sides of the same coin. Um, What advice would you give to those people who are like, well, you you have to be mindful. Like, you know, here I am, I run a center you know, at the university, and I have 60 or so people at the center, I can't walk into a meeting and say, like, everybody, I'm feeling chronic loneliness, despair, you know, at what's happening in the world, anxious that we're never going to get any more grants, and I'm really angry at my partner, and, you know, like, people are like, what the hell is going on here, right? So there's, like, there's a, you have to, you have to be nuanced, right? You've got to be aware of your impact. It doesn't mean I can't be real. You know, like one of the, you know, a source of positive feedback I get is like, God, it's so um, relieving to know that, gosh, you're like this person who's like written a book and like run the center, but you, you know, you're like, you're angry all the time or you're frustrated or you're feeling anxious about what's happening. I'm like, yeah, it doesn't mean that I'm incapacitated by it. And I think that's the fine line is that we associate negative emotions with being incapacitated, mm. right? Anxiety means you're dysfunctional. No, I'm, I've been anxious my entire life um, and I've done very well. Um, I've learned how to manage the anxiety with effective strategies. So I think that's the message that we want to get across that it's, we're not going to judge the emotion. What we want to do is support people in not allowing their emotions to have power over them and to learn strategies that we can use to support them in being comfortable with it and then how to shift it as well. Are there any emotions that are commonly misunderstood? Well, the anger disappointment one that I shared is a big one. The jealousy envy one, people mess up. The stress and anxiety and pressure and overwhelm people mess up. You know, happiness and contentment. are another group that people mess up. Um, and, and it's mostly because people aren't taught to label these feelings and define them accurately. And if they, if they get to that level of nuance, there's kind of a different playbook for each of these. That's maybe a little... Yeah, there is. Because, you know, if you're really just like stressed out, like, because like it's hectic, you know, taking some breaths and doing some mindfulness exercises might be helpful. I mean, mindfulness is good just in general to be more present. But if you're feeling um, envy, so like a good example I have is here, um, I did a study with students. They all said they were stressed and I didn't believe them because I'm like, come on. It's kind of a catch-all sort of like. It is. like. Tell me what you're feeling. I really want to know what you're feeling. I'm feeling not good. <laughs> yeah, I'm stressed. I'm busy. You know, break down. Um, the and what I learned from asking my students to do more deeper to do deeper work with this was that they were feeling envy. So, like the number one emotion among our undergraduates was envy. So I went to the counseling center and I said, "So tell me, you know, what's the strategy to support 
our students, you know, envy. And they're like, what do you mean? We could do yoga, we do mindfulness. I'm like, I understand that, but they're feeling envious, you know. Where's the research which shows that a you know, downward dog is going to decrease envy? Um, and, you know, I wasn't very popular that week because this is why I think you have to get granular. Like, if you're in a classroom as an undergrad and you're just like living in envy, like, you're richer than I am, and your father's more connected than my father, and your mother's a famous politician, you're going to have free ride to DC, and you know, your dad's a famous scientist, you're going to get that fellowship. You know, it's endless, you know, what our students here, you know, are doing psychologically in their brains around envy. Mindfulness is not going to cure that. What's going to help people is learning how to restructure their thinking. Like, you just got to change, you got to focus on having a more positive narrative, you know, around who you are in life, as opposed to constantly being, uh, making social comparisons. Who you are and who they are too, probably. Yeah. And what, what could that look like? Case specific well, or is there? Yeah I, yeah, I think this is good. So if I'm sitting around saying, you know, it's like, all right, so let me challenge myself. Does every rich person achieve their dreams in life? Of course not, right? So um, that's, that's a story that I just made up. Um, that like this person is definitely going to be more successful than I am because they're rich or because their father's famous. Like that's just, that's just a story I'm making up, you know, and maybe there's, you know, an element to it to get more connections, but you can't guarantee success because daddy's rich or mommy's famous. Um, and it's, it's really pushing people to like reframe is another term, another strategy that we teach people. Like what's another way you can look at this? Like, by the way, you still are a freaking undergrad at Yale. You've done pretty well. Hey, <laughs> hey, right? You got in. Um, so, like, maybe you should have some gratitude, right? And maybe you should focus on the things that you're doing well. Because let me ask you something. How useful is it to your well-being to be living in a constant state of social comparison? Like, what is that going to help? How's that going to help you? And then you just listen, right? And then it's like, it's going to be hard for people to come up with a legitimate reason why it's helpful to be constantly comparing themselves to everybody else. And then slowly you start saying, well, then that's a lot of time not well spent. Let's spend that time helping you achieve your dreams, helping you, you know, focus on what you're, you know, what's important to you. So th that's a, that's a really useful tool. And then I imagine, you know, you can do that once, but it's likely not going to stick. You got to do it a thousand times. I'm doing it, and I've done it like a million, like literally. I'm a catastrophic thinker. Oftentimes, like when the stock market started falling about a month ago, I was like, Ugh, "It's over. You know, life. I'm never going to retire." And yeah, you know, we're returning everything that we purchased in the last six months. And that was, you know, and then I'm like, "All right, how much control do you have of the stock market, Mark?" Like, no, no one can predict the stock market. So why are you spending all day long tracking your stocks? <laughs> you didn't even know how to deal with them. Um, you know, so again, life is a roller coaster ride. And you know, it took me a couple of weeks to get over the stock market thing. And then it's like offices are closing. Oh shit. Like then I was like, what are my 60 staff members going to be doing all day? And 
I'm going to track their progress. And I was like, well, how much control? I'm going to walk over to everybody's house and knock on their door and like ask them to give me a printout of their daily calendar? No. All right, so like maybe this is an opportunity to be a more distributive kind of leader. And so it's like just pausing and just forcing yourself to like not drive yourself down the path to, you know, not so craziness and think about ways that you can have thoughts that are supportive of your health and well-being. And it really starts with, I, I love the acronym because it's recognized. You got to catch it first and yeah. then what is happening. Let me put words to it and then like, okay, here's the tool I have. Let me grab, grab that from the toolbox. I'd love to explore other ones. So envy, envy is a great one. I think that's like the pinnacle of the social media generation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what about jealousy? What are, let's do a, let's do a, a round robin of, of the worst of the worst emotions. <laughs> what, well, what jealousy is tough, right? Cause that's yep. like, that's when you believe, you know, that your loved one is going to like be more attractive to somebody else. That's painful, right? Or that you're going to lose them to somebody who you think is better quality than you have. Mm. or who you think that your partner believes is better quality than you have, right? So, um, again, like, where's the data, you know? And how much control do you have over it? So, you know, if your partner is attracted to someone else, they are attracted to someone else. <laughs> it's like, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> you can't say, no, they're ugly. Um, or no, they don't have better quality than I have. Um, and so, A, it's about, I think in relationships, it's about being the best possible partner um, and being you know, your best self for that person. And B, um, I think also, it's like, there's always gonna be somebody better looking. There's always gonna be somebody who's more money. Always going to be somebody who's got a better, better abs, bigger biceps, bigger whatever, you know, more attractive X, Y, Z. Like you're never going to not have these feelings, you know. And so part of it is accepting that you're going to feel that way and being comfortable living with it. And know that just because you may be jealous doesn't mean that you can't still love the person that you're with and that they can't love you you know like you can be with someone who find who you know it's difficult unless you have really you know worked on your self-esteem but it is possible where's the line between kind of working to regulate your emotions and accepting it well you always want to accept it yeah that's like the beginning right that the first tenet of my book, Permission to Feel, is all emotions are information. That's, that's the first piece. There's no good or bad emotions. So accepting the anxiety that we're all feeling right now. And then decide, you know, do I need a strategy to help me be more comfortable with the anger or the fear or the anxiety? Or do I need to shift? You know, like, if I'm going to do a presentation, you know, probably I want to be energized. And if I'm feeling kind of like blah, 
I don't want to just accept the blah and just like live with it. I'm going to put on some music. I'm going to just like play, do some cognitive exercises to be like, come on, all right, Mark, you got to get on that stage. Kick ass, do that kick ass presentation, right? You do need to shift sometimes. And so you need strategies on how to do that. Just like you need strategies to like calm down. Like, you know, if you're like frenetic and people who are like highly extroverted and, you know, energized and outgoing, you know, I'm not one of those people. So like they drive me out of my mind. Um, I'm like, calm oh, yeah. down. Like, <laughs> I can't deal with it right now. Like you're freaking me out. Um, whereas maybe from someone like myself, I'm going to learn how to, you know, energize more. My point is that it's not, it's never good or bad. It's always about being self-aware and modulating, you know, to meet goals. Yeah. I know you've done a lot of research on people's abilities to self-report their, um, emotions. Could you maybe share some of those findings as well as what are some more objective measures of emotions that, that you use? Well, there's two things there. One is there's like self reporting on how you're feeling and your emotions. And then there's how do you measure people's actual skills in ruler? And those are different, right? So if I just say, Hey, how are you feeling? I mean, you may not know the language, but you're going to give me something that's probably accurate unless there's something at stake, mm -hmm. you know? So asking people how they feel, I think is the only way to know, like depression, like anxiety, right? Like the only way to know if someone is depressed or anxious is to find out how they're feeling. There aren't biomarkers that can. There are, but it's still, it's still a psychological phenomenon. Yeah. Right. You may show the proclivity or the, they're prone to anxiety, but you know, anxiety is a psychological thing, right? Depression is a psychological thing because biology that contributes to it. They're kind of inextricably linked. But if I say to you, like, hey, how skilled are you at reading people? That's when I don't trust what you have to say. Right? You know, how skilled are you at regulating your feelings? You know, like, compared to who? I always think, like, how skilled am I at regulating? Well, it depends who you ask, right? You know, if you ask, like, colleagues, they're going to think, God, Mark's incredible. He's so, like, good at regulating. Straight from a Zen mountain every day. Yeah. If you ask my mother-in-law, who's living with us now, she'd say, I'm, I'm a complete mess. And, you know, and then if you ask me, I would say, well, it depends. You know, yeah. compared to my father, I'm a freaking genius. Compared to the Dalai Lama, I need some freaking work. Mm -hmm. So my point is that self-reports are not good measures of um, self-awareness around our abilities. You have to really measure it. So we've been building assessment tools where we give people like you like video uh, videos of facial expressions and you've got to decode them. And then we have experts rate them and then we compare your score to the experts' consensus scores. Can people um, go on and do that? They can. Not yet. We're still validating it. It'll be ready in like another month. Hello. It's been a five-year project. Wow. Let me know. Say is coming to, uh, yeah, it's a cool test. It's original because the earlier work was done with static images, but like emotions are complex, right? You're not like a face on a photo is not really like reading someone's three-dimensional 
you know, movements and stuff. Is there any genetic evidence as to people's emotions um, kind of coming from lineages of family members? And also, what is the, the um, sort of flexibility people have in their abilities to improve their regulation of emotions? Is there, is there a kind of, do people have different tolerances and their abilities to master this stuff and age dependent or? Yeah, this is a big one. Um, because A, I think it's important to differentiate your temperament from your emotional intelligence. So for example, you know, in terms of personality traits, I would be considered someone who's pretty high in like a trait called neuroticism, right? It's like, I'm a little volatile. You know, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself bipolar, but um, I am, you know, I'm moody, um, in and out, like, blah, 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 like, like that. So, um, my point here is that that's my tendency to experience strong emotions, negative feelings, etc. It's not necessarily how skilled I am at dealing with that. As a matter of fact, you could argue that because of, of being high in this trait, I have more opportunity to practice the skills. Mm. Whereas someone who's more even keeled, when someone really pushes their button, they may like blow up and not know how to deal with it. Um, so there's no correlation between your personality traits and your emotional intelligence. I think that's an important thing to know. And then the other thing is- You still might experience quote negative emotions more often than someone even who's that doesn't mean you're less emotionally intelligent and emotionally intelligent meaning the ruler aspects right. both for yourself and with others experience of feeling is not a skill it's just the experience of feeling hmm. right it's whether you deal with them effectively or not that you make you emotionally intelligent whether you're accurately identifying them that makes you emotionally intelligent yeah is that you see the difference? Yes, I do. It's an important distinction though, because as a kid, I think I totally confused my ability to learn strategies with my self-esteem and mood issues. And so I thought I'm I'm a mess. I'm never going to be able to learn anything. I'm skip, you know, you know, and that was misguided. If there are any listeners who relate, and I I certainly certainly relate as someone who tends to be anxious pretty often. There's this book um, called My History of Anxiety by, I forget the guy's first name, but Stossel, that basically he's, um, I believe the editor of The Atlantic. And his, his grandfather was the dean or provost of Harvard and actually like left because he was so anxious and his, his, whole, his whole family has a ton of anxiety. But he talks about how like some of the greatest minds Charles Darwin was almost bedridden by anxiety for, for much of when he was writing. Um, and so it was, it was honestly really transformative for me as someone who's very anxious to disassociate my, my feelings and my capabilities and realizing that like, yeah. So I'd, I'd love to um, kind of take us a little bit into more on a societal level and explore the question of like, if you were to, if you were to design the, the perfect school system for teaching social emotional intelligence, how is it delivered? When, 
why is it effective? So Ruler, the approach that we have built in our center, right, is a systemic approach. And I learned this the hard way because I started my career with my uncle trying to create a program for middle schoolers because that's where I suffered and that's where he was a teacher. And we failed. Now we failed because the adults who were teaching middle school just weren't prepared to deliver the SEL instruction. They hadn't dealt with their own anxiety, their own anger, frustration. They didn't want to talk about it. They had meta feelings, right? Or meta emotions about this. And then I learned quickly it's about the adults, not the kids. But then I realized it's about principals because they really guide whether or not schools adopt programs. And then I realized it's about superintendents because they really make financial decisions, school boards. So now Ruler is an approach that really provides training for superintendents and school boards, leaders, teachers, students, and families. So my view of SEL or social and emotional learning is that to have the best outcomes, you need to embed these Ruler skills into the way leaders lead, teachers teach, students learn, and families parent, which means that um, you basically have to take these skills and tools and infuse them into the fabric of the school. So that includes you know, direct instruction on the skills and it includes embedding them into you know, the curriculum. Should there be some sort of evaluation that every student does, almost like a standardized test? So there's controversy over that, mostly because you know we don't want people not to get into a college because they have low emotional intelligence, and so we don't want people to be left back because you know they didn't regulate effectively. So I think the assessment in this space needs to be much more formative, much more supportive of you know of profiles. So you tend to, when you're anxious, use these maladaptive or unhelpful strategies. Let's try to move you towards using these and let's keep on working with you to help you develop more helpful strategies. But it should not be used for um, like high stakes, you know, accountability kind of things. I'm fully against that. And should people be, um, should they be sent to an expert like coach for this or is this something that people should be practicing for an hour every week or? 20 minutes every day you know if you were well, i think it depends like some people need more help yeah you know if you've been a, if you have trauma in your life you know you need deeper supports and there's nothing wrong with that um but think about this if it's embedded into the curriculum from preschool to high school and you're building your language skills and your understanding skills and your in environments where it's safe to express all emotions and you're learning strategies on how to regulate them across your development uh, like imagine the brain of a child who went through an education system from preschool to high school that had that experience versus one who didn't. Be completely different the way they would operate and the way they would manage emotions. So I do think there's profound benefits to, you know, making it part of, you know, the full pre-K to high school experience. Um, and then, you know, when you struggle, whether it be with your anxiety or my anxiety or someone else it's depression or someone else it's anger then you get the extra coaching just like you do with math and science and language arts um so it sounds like okay so if someone is listening to this and they're inspired and they want to do like a weekend-long boot camp on social emotional learning sounds like use ruler make sure to label get your fluency on all the terms up think about 
reshaping your narratives, use the downward dog, the meditation, you can, um, you know, take a, take breaks. Any other, any other tools that we haven't covered? Well, there's a lot of tools. So, you know, the mood meter is the tool that um, is in my book that helps people to build greater awareness of their feelings. So have a tool like that to track your emotions over time. And then sometimes you need other tools. So we have another tool in our work, we call it the meta moment, which has to do with managing those triggers. Um, sometimes it's harder to, like there's everyday emotion regulation and then there's like hijacked emotion regulation, you know, where, you know, for example, I joke about being home, you know, and so I, I've been cooking a lot, but I've been getting like unsolicited feedback about my meals. Um, you know, like, why do you need to do that today? And like, is anything a little too much oil here? And like, why'd you put corn there? It would have been better without the corn. Like, and I want to say like, you know, I won't say it here, but I'm, gonna, I'm going for the jugular. And, um, and then say, all right, Mark, you know, you're the director of the Center for Emotional Intelligence. Remember that, remember that. <laughs> live, up to the, live up to the title. <laughs> exactly. And that's what the meta moment helps us do. It helps us to pause and activate what we call our best selves so that then we can respond through the lens of our best self as opposed to you know the self that is the automatic triggered self. So there's a lot of tools and I think you know to put all this together because I think we don't have much more time left is you know this first piece is you got to give yourself the permission to feel right it's all all feelings are okay. The second is you got to be that emotion scientist, right? You just got to be curious and open about your own other's feelings. Don't be the judge. Judges are good in the courtroom. They're not good for feelings, right? The third is that you got to develop the skills and that it's not like math where you learn five plus five equals 10 and you're done. You know, I've learned how to use positive self-talk for 25 years now. And there are days that I don't use it well. It's dynamic. It's complicated. You know, how we deal with our feelings is based on things like whether we slept well, ate, ate well, exercised, complicated. So it needs a lot of attention and, and you know, support and practice and it's effortful. Um, and then recognize that we can't do this alone. It's gotta be done like in groups and relationships and classrooms and workplaces, because if you're the only one learning the skills and everybody else is following the battle of rules, it's hard to move forward. Bringing it all full circle again. You know, we, we live at, at a time where I think a lot of people are lonely because every, everyone's isolated. And what advice would you give to someone who is, wants to reach out to a friend and kind of not just say, how are you doing? And then saying, I'm fine. You know, what are some questions you can use to really be incisive and create that space for people to open up? I think you have to be the person who opens up first. Yeah. You got to be the role model. So when we work with parents or teachers, it's like, be the role model, right? Share how you're feeling. Just make sure you don't make your kids think they got to take care of you. Mm -hmm. Right. So you don't want to tell your friend, like, you know, I'm really, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm not, but if you want to support them, right? You want to say, you know, I've been anxious a lot. Lately. It's been really weird and my anger has been getting the best of me. 
working on it, you know, how's it going for you? You know, and you have to know your, your, your audience, right? So, you know, if you're a bunch of dudes, you know, they don't want to talk about like how you're feeling. You might say like, say, how's it going? What's going on with the family? You know? So you have to, you have to know, you know, how to open somebody up. And I think that's also emotional intelligence, right? You have to know your audience. And, um, and that would be my, my basic suggestion there. Awesome. Any other, I guess I'd, I'd ask where, where are the next steps for you? What are the, the questions that you are exploring and what, what feels unsolved in this space? Um, I think for me, you know, two, two things. One is um, the, um, we have to give ourselves the permission to fail and forgive and have some self-compassion because it's hard work. And then, you know, my next, the next phase of my work is really gonna be to unpack why is it so difficult? You know, why is it so hard for people to learn these skills and why does it take so much time and how can we like, you know, boost people's ability to learn these skills? And that's what I'm really interested in. Is there any, anybody you look towards as leaders in the space that are influencing your thinking around this? a lot of scientists you know people who are studying emotion management like the scientist james gross you know who's at stanford uh dr keltner who's a researcher at berkeley lisa Feldman barrett who's a scientist um at northeastern um you know there's a lot of different like people who are trying to unpack you know the complexities of our emotional life anybody who looks into um friendships and emotional intelligence or, or like are doing, is doing leading work on friendships? I have to think about that some more, but there are definitely researchers. Names aren't popping into my mind right away. Cool. Well, thank you, Mark. This has been yeah, my pleasure. An awesome episode. And I'm going to, I'm going to, the toolbox has been opened and it's been reloaded. Awesome. Thank you for, uh, for sharing so much. So my pleasure. Great to meet you.